Chapter Thirty Five of the Covered Wagon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Covered Wagon by Emerson Huff. Chapter Thirty Five G. Wo Ha. Midsummer in the Desert. The road now, but for the shifting of the sands, would have been marked by the bodies of dead cattle. In death, scarcely more bone and parchment than for days they had been while alive the horned toad the cactus the rattlesnake long since had replaced the prairie dogs of the grassy floor of the eastern plains a scourge of great black crickets appeared crackling lonesomely under the wheels sagebrush and sand took the place of trees and grass as they left the river valley and crossed a succession of ridges or plateaus at last they reached vast black basaltic masses and lava fields proof of former subterranean fires which seemingly had forever dried out the life of the earth's surface the very vastness of the views might have had charm but for the tempering feeling of awe of doubt of fear they had followed the trail over the immemorial tribal crossings over heights of land lying between the heads of streams from the Green River, which finds the great canyons of the Colorado, they came into the vast horseshoe valley of the Bear, almost circumventing the Great Salt Lake, but unable to forsake it at last. West and south now rose bold mountains around whose northern extremity the river had felt its way, and back of these lay fold on folds of lofty ridges, now softened by the distances. Of all the splendid landscapes of the Oregon Trail, this one had few rivals. But they must leave this and cross to yet another, though less inviting, vast river valley of the series which led them across the continent. Out of the many wagons which Jesse Wingate originally had captained, now not one hundred remained in his detachment when it took the sagebrush plateaus below the great Snake River. They still were back of the Missouri train, no doubt several days, but no message left on a cleft stick at camp cheered them or enlightened them, and now still another defection had cut down the train. Woodhull, moody and erasable, feverish and excited by turns, ever since leaving Bridger, had held secret conclaves with a few of his adherents, the nature of which he did not disclose. There was no great surprise and no extreme regret when, within safe reach of Fort Hall, he had announced his intention of going on ahead with a dozen wagons. He went without obtaining any private interview with Molly Wingate. These matters, none the less, had their depressing effect. Few allusions remained to any of them now, and no romance. Yet they went on, ten miles, fifteen sometimes, though rarely twenty miles a day. Women fell asleep babes in arms, jostling on the wagon seats. Men almost slept as they walked, ox whip in hand. The cattle slept as they stumbled on, tongues dry and lolling. All the earth seemed strange, unreal. They advanced as though in a dream through some inferno of a crazed imagination. About them now often rose the wavering images of the mirage, offering water, trees, wide landscapes, beckoning in such desert deceits as they often now had seen. One day, as the brazen sun mocked them from its zenith, they saw that they were not alone on the trail. "'Look, mother!' exclaimed Molly Wingate. She now rode with her mother on the seat of the family wagon. Jed, driving her cart, 
when not on the cow column. See, there's a caravan. Her cry was echoed or anticipated by scores of voices of others who had seen the same thing. They pointed west and south. Surely there was a caravan, a phantom caravan, far off, gigantic, looming and lowering again. It paralleled the advance of their own train, which in numbers it seemed to equal. Slowly, steadily, irresistibly, awesomely, it kept pace with them, sending no sign to them, mockingly indifferent to them, mockingly so, indeed. For when the leaders of the Wingate wagons paused the riders of the ghostly train paused also, biding their time with no action to indicate their intent. When the advance was resumed, the uncanny Paripossa again went on, the rival caravan going forward as fast, no faster than those who regarded it in a fascinated interest that began to become fear. Yonder caravan could bode no good. Without doubt it planned an ambush farther on, and this sinister indifference meant only its certainty of success. Or were there, then, other races of men out here in this unknown world of heat and sand? Was this a treasure train of old Spanish cargadors? Did ghosts live and move as men? If not, what caravan was this, moving alone, far from the beaten trail? What purpose had it here? Look, mother, the girl's voice rose eagerly again, but this time with a laugh in it, and her assurance passed down the line, others laughing in relief at the solution. It's ourselves, said Molly. It's the Fata Morgana, but how marvelous! Who could believe it? Indeed, the mirage had taken that rare and extraordinary form. The mirage of their own caravan, rising, was reflected, mirrored by some freak of the desert sun and air, upon the fine sand blown in the air at a distance from the train. It was, indeed, themselves they saw, not knowing it, in a vast primordial mirror of the desert gods. Nor did the discovery of the truth lessen the feeling of discomfort, of apprehension. The laughter was at best uneasy until at last a turn in the trail, a shift in the wizardry of the heat waves, broke up the ghostly caravan and sent it, figure by figure, vehicle by vehicle, into the unknown whence it had come. This country, exclaimed Molly Wingate's mother, it scares me. If Oregon's like this, it isn't, mother. It is rich and green with rains. There are great trees, many mountains, beautiful rivers where we are going, and there are fields of grain. There are, why, there are homes. The sudden pathos of her voice drew her mother's frowning gaze. There, there, child, said she. Don't you mind. We'll always have a home for you, your pa and me. The girl shook her head. I sometimes think I'd better teach school and live alone. And leave your parents? How can I look my father in the face every day, knowing what he feels about me? Just now he accuses me of ruining Sam Woodhull's life, driving him away, out of the train. But what could I do? Marry him, after all? I can't. I can't. I'm glad he's gone, but I don't know why he went. In my belief, you haven't heard or seen the last of Sam Woodhull yet, mused her mother. Sometimes a man gets sort of peeved, wants to marry a girl that jilts him more if she hadn't. And you certainly jilted him at the church door. If there'd been any church there, it was an awful thing, Molly. I don't know as I see how Sam stood it long as he did. Haven't I paid for it, mother? Why, yes, one way of speaking. But that ain't the way men are going to call themselves paid. Until he's married, a man's powerful set on having a woman. 
if he don't he thinks he ain't paid it don't scarcely make no difference what the woman does no i don't reckon he'll forget about will banion don't let's mention him mother i'm trying to forget him yes where do you reckon he is now how far ahead i don't know i can't guess the color on her cheek caught her mother's gaze gee wo ha get along buck and star commanded the buxom dame to the swaying ox team that now followed the road with no real need of guidance they took up the heat and burden of the desert end of chapter thirty five